We started Exo because we wanted to transform the food system. And we wanted to introduce insect protein as an entire food group alongside plant-based protein, animal-based protein. And that was a billion-dollar opportunity that was potentially world-changing for the environmental benefits. Fast forward three, four years, what we had was a hipster protein bar business with crickets in it. And so when we looked ourselves in the mirror, it was it was kind of cool. You know, we we were in Whole Foods, we were in Equinox gyms, we were Forbes 30, like we'd all these sort of surface-level accolades, but we weren't actually fulfilling the mission that we set out to fulfill. That's Gabby Lewis, co-founder of Magic Spoon, a startup that's reinventing the cereal aisle. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens. With the world spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's leading FOMologist. And this is a show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. Welcome back, FOMO Sapiens. Now, I've got a really interesting guest here, and he has started two food companies, including one called Magic Spoon that makes a new kind of breakfast cereal. It's healthy, it's better for you, but it tastes like the cereals you loved as a kid. So I guess he's what you could call a cereal, cereal entrepreneur. Get it? All right. Now, that's terrible joke, but it's actually factual. Um, he's a cereal entrepreneur. He's a cereal entrepreneur. Anyway. But Magic Spoon isn't just any cereal company. It's a startup that sells only via the internet to consumers. It trades on nostalgia and healthy properties in order to get people to buy. And it has a huge social strategy. So it's got something like 200,000 Instagram followers. I mean, that's ridiculous. I got to think Toucan Sam, Count Chocula, and the Leprechaun from Lucky Charms are feeling pretty, pretty jealous right now. Now, while the product is cool and Gabby's got a great Scottish accent, the reason why I wanted to have him on the show is much more than that. It's about the journey and the decisions he's made to get to where he is today. And these are some pretty interesting things. Includes things like starting a cricket protein bar company called Exo out of his dorm room at Brown. That's unusual. It's also the fact that he had tons of initial success, raised millions of dollars, had tons of hype. And then after five years, he realized it wasn't going to scale like he wanted. And he decided with his co-founder to exit the business and start all over again. And they did that two years ago with Magic Spoon. Now, some of you long-term listeners might just remember another set of entrepreneurs who started their business out of their dorm room over at Brown, Marco and Rip from Rip Van Waffles. And in fact, it was Marco who gave me the backstory on Gabby and told me that I just had to have him on the show. So I want to thank you, Marco. Very good recommendation. Love that. Then stick around for the faux moment of the show. We're going to talk about how you know when it's time to throw in the towel on a project, be it a startup, a side project, or a cricket protein bar company, if you have one of those. And then we'll talk about when to stick with it. So it's a really important topic for any of you entrepreneurs or anybody who's just doing something that takes up a lot of time and you don't quite know if you should keep going. And now onto the interview. As I mentioned, Gabby started a cricket protein company out of his dorm room. What I didn't tell you is that he turned down a high-paying hedge fund job working for the legendary Ray Dalio in the process. So I started our conversation by asking Gabby how he developed the conviction to turn down all of that money and to try to convince people to eat bugs. It's a great question. I would say that it wasn't a rational decision. 
I would say <laughs> what, what gave me the conviction was probably, like most entrepreneurs, a little bit of irrational overconfidence. And I actually very nearly went to join a hedge fund called Bridgewater, largest hedge fund in the world, at least at the time. And that was sort of the alternate path for me. But I knew I never wanted to end up doing that. And so if I'd chosen that path, it would have been a short term, do a few years in finance, make a bit of money. Then everyone says they'll, they'll quit after a few years. Nobody does. Everyone gets tempted by the raise. And so I knew if I went down that path, it would be very hard to get off that path. And so given that I wanted to eventually start a company, decided might as well just dive in head first and do it right after college. Now, this is, and we were talking about Bridgewater here, very high paying jobs at Bridgewater. All my friends who work there seem to be buying lots of houses and stuff. And so you you had like a number that you could expect. Did you actually, when you, when you thought about this, was this more of a sort of a feeling or did you sit down and sort of like put pen and paper and say like, this is what I'm giving up. This is the risk I'm taking. This is the potential upside if I do something on my own. How did you think about that? It was somewhere in between. I was also heavily motivated by everyone telling me it was a silly thing to do. And so basically every parent, every friend was like, how can you turn down a job at Bridgewater? And not only that, you're going to turn down a job at Bridgewater to start a company selling cricket protein bars, which seems crazy today, seemed even crazier seven or eight years ago. And at the time, there was a couple of articles, one in the BBC, uh, maybe one in National Geographic about cricket protein being this futuristic, sustainable, economical protein source. But nobody had started a business around it, and it was still like even more fringe and niche than it is today. So everyone thought it was insane. To me, that was like a little bit motivating. You know, always wanted to do things a little bit differently. And then obviously, any way you do the math is just purely hypothetical, right? So like, I did sit down and I did sort of project. Okay, here's what it's going to look like if I go to Bridgewater. And then when you start to project what it might look like if you start your own company any assumption is just pulled out of thin air. So it's sort of a useless exercise. And so I'd say at the end of the day, like I tried to put pen to paper, but ultimately more of a gut decision. But I like that you did that because one of the things that I've found is we can sit there stewing in our heads. And I've had these decisions in my life where it's like every night I'm in bed, like turning and I never bother to put things down on their paper. So when you write things down, you make them tangible, you can actually make some sort of analysis. So you go off and do this with your 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 co-founder, Greg, and you guys do well. You're Forbes 30 under 30, you raise more than $5 million for this really kind of you know new idea, and you're changing people's minds about something they put into their body, right? So it's a, it's, you're, you're changing consumer behavior, which I think is one of the hardest things to do. How did you think about the opportunity and how did you get people to say like, oh, I'll eat that bug bar um, when maybe they'd never thought about it before? We got people to do it by being very selective about who we're asking to do it. So we deliberately went to certain niches that we knew would have a higher propensity to do something a little bit weird for the sake of their diet. So when we started that business, it was peak CrossFit, it was peak paleo, it was peak gluten-free, all these trends of which now they've morphed into different things. At the time, they were like really, really getting huge. And it tied in particularly nicely because what is more paleo than eating bugs? And when you look at what a real paleo diet is, it, it wasn't steak wrapped in bacon for three meals a day like the paleo diet was practiced here a few years ago. It was hunter-gatherers foraging for bugs and berries and leaves. And so the paleo diet, which was, like I said, at the speak a few years ago, that community really embraced what we were doing. And we formulated the products largely for those sorts of niche diet communities. 
And so what we found was it was much easier than we expected to penetrate and get the first, let's say, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 customers. The next 100,000 customers, million customers was was far, far harder. And so crossing that classic chasm from like the early adopters, the mainstream audience, that was where we struggled with that last business. Yeah, you end up selling to your main competitor and then you know went on to start Magic Spoon. So I think a lot of people see this, okay, it's like, okay, you started a company, you sold it, you must have made millions of dollars and now, you know, you're just like post-economic. But tell us about what, what, what that's really like. I mean, did you sell because the offer was so compelling you couldn't refuse? Did you sell because you said, listen, this is great business, but it's not going to be a billion dollar business and we want to go off and do something kind of more easy to scale? How did you think about that? We started EXO because we wanted to transform the food system and we wanted to introduce insect protein as an entire food group alongside plant-based protein, animal-based protein. And that was a billion-dollar opportunity that was potentially world-changing for the environmental benefits. Fast forward three, four years, what we had was a hipster protein bar business with crickets in it. And so when we looked ourselves in the mirror, it was it was kind of cool. You know, we we were in Whole Foods, we were in Equinox gyms, we were Forbes 30 under 30, like we had all these sort of surface level accolades, but we weren't actually fulfilling the mission that we set out to fulfill. And so we sort of had two choices. Choice one was keep it on going down the path we're on, you know, sort of accept we've got kind of a cool smallish business selling these protein bars with great branding and getting some good PR, or if we really wanted to fulfill the mission here, we would have had to raise tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. We'd have had to hire lobbyists. We'd have had to change legislation. We'd have had to invest tens of millions in TV campaigns to change hearts and minds and really shift consumer behavior. And that would have meant committing to being the guy slinging crickets for the next 30, 40 years. And when we looked in the mirror long and hard, we didn't want to be cricket farmers for the rest of our lives. And so we decided to sell the business to a supplier, actually, and then take some time and start another business. This is always hard to do. You see somebody who's built a business, they've had success, they've raised the money, they launched it, they've got the public profile, there's the articles, and it's kind of like part of your identity, right? It's like people know you as the cricket protein bar person. And I'm, I could Google you right now. I'm sure I'd find lots of articles about it. And then you make that decision to go back into the wilds and start over, which is, um, I have to imagine, exciting, but also intimidating. And I, I'm, unfortunately, a lot of entrepreneurs just stay stuck in that place where it's like, okay, this isn't scaling, but I'm, this is me now. This is my, it's like an ego expressive part of who I am and, I, and I'm not willing to let that behind. You did that. Did you at the time feel kind of like you were losing a little bit of your identity when you exited that business? I, I did. And the cricket protein bar business was such a weird business. I think more that more so than many others, we did get this identity. Like people would call us the cricket guys. And like you said, you like you Google us in every headline, it's like meet the Brooklyn duo making cricket bars. And like it's all just us, the cricket guys. But at the same time, there was really no other choice. So we didn't want to just keep on like slightly pushing for years and years. And one of our investors said to us actually like very early on, he was like, the minute this thing isn't just explosive, the minute you feel you are like remotely just zombieing on day to day, that's the minute not to do it anymore. And that's like the worst place to be. And that's the hardest place to get out of is when it's just sort of like, mundane day-to-day, -day, you're like 
maybe growing a little bit, but not enough to be having fun anymore. And that was sort of where we found ourselves that it would have been very easy just to like keep going, but nothing would have changed for years. And, you know, we needed something to change. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. Okay, so you say goodbye to the cricket guys. And by the way, I understand this as the person who's like the FOMO guy that everybody just... <laughs> I mean, it is this kind of thing where like... I, I, part of me is like, that's cool. Part of me is like, well, I do other things too. You know, don't put me in a box. But uh, but it is one of those things that you get used to being associated with something like this. And so you leave and you settle on cereal. Cereal, I'm, I'm going to put it out there, and I'm sure many of our listeners are just like me. I ate a ton of cereal in my youth. I mean, I ate all the cereal. In fact, I actually lived with a guy who stole the cereal dispensers from the bacteria at Georgetown, had them in the room. He was a bit of a klepto, so you had to watch everything. <laughs> but I mean, this was there was a lot of cereal in my life. And then, you know, you sort of hit adulthood and you start thinking, well, geez, I really want to ingest that into my body. And that's what you observed was the fact that you had been big consumers and all of a sudden they were incompatible with a healthy lifestyle. So tell us about how that journey started. How did you figure out sort of that the opportunity was there and then how did you actually go ahead and, and make the first products that, that you, that you put out to consumers? Yeah. So after EXO, we, we knew we wanted to stay in the food and beverage business. And we had a few criteria that we wanted to satisfy with the next business. And the biggest one was we wanted to go into a huge market. So whereas with EXO, we were taking this very niche, non-existent idea and trying to create supply and create demand at the same time, we wanted to have the opposite experience. We wanted to find a huge market that had zero innovation in it. And if you want to do that and you want to stay in food and beverage, you're pretty limited to where you can go. So the top three categories in the grocery store right now are cereal, milk, and soda. You look at milk, there's just an endless list of oat milks and cashew milks and lab-grown milk and all these alternatives. You look at soda, you have the sparkling water wars, you've got kombucha, again, endless startups trying to get in there. You look at cereal, you've got this $11 billion market domestically, and it looks the same as it did 20 years ago. Basically not a single startup, at least there wasn't a year ago, trying to reinvent cereal for the modern consumer. And so we asked why, and people gave us answers we didn't think were very good. So the answers we got were things like, the market's controlled by the three big boys. So you've got General Mills, Kellogg's, and Post that combined control about 80% of the shelf space. You've got other reasons like, oh, it's a declining category, which is true. The category is declining very slightly year over year, but it's declining from something that's absolutely enormous to something that's still pretty huge. So we didn't think that was a very good reason. 
And so we went one by one through all these reasons that everyone gave us for why nobody's reinvented cereal. We thought they were all terrible. And so we went on a journey to see if we could do it. And so what we wanted to do was upgrade cereal, making it higher in protein, lower in carbs, and zero sugar. In the same way that you've seen, for example, Halo Top do that to ice cream, and other companies do it in basically every aisle in the grocery store. The challenge with cereal is that unlike protein bars, for example, you cannot just make cereal at a small scale in your kitchen at home. And so most people, when they start a food business, they'll maybe make a little batch at home in their kitchen, then they'll rent commercial kitchen space by the hour and make a couple of hundred units, and they'll slowly scale up. With cereal, and this is one of the other reasons why nobody had done this before, you, you need a big, big, big machine. So the machines to make cereal cost a huge amount of money, and you can't just make a couple of boxes of cereal to test it. And so the initial sort of trials and formulations has a much bigger lift than most other food products. And so it took us around the country, visiting lots of different cereal factories, experimenting with every protein source you can imagine, every sweetener you can imagine, and just hundreds and hundreds of trials to eventually get a product that we're really proud of that mimics the taste and texture of all the junk cereals, but has massively upgraded nutrition and ingredients. Yeah, I, and I've had this cereal. So actually, you guys sent me over a box and I tried three flavors this morning. And it there's one that's a, that's a fruit flavored. It's like a, it's sort of reminiscent of Fruit Loops and you capture it. I mean, if I close my eyes, I wouldn't know the difference, except that, of course, it's a healthier product. So it is kind of like I, I, I bit into the cereal and the smell is right. I mean, it, the, you got that right. That was the part that really blew my mind. And you bite into it and you feel like it's 1987 and you're about <laughs> to watch the gummy bears. And it's really it kind of took me back. Um, and so. I am interested because you mentioned these three big incumbent players. And a lot of times when people launch startups, everybody says, no, don't do that. They're so well-funded. They control the aisle. They do this. They do that. They're going to crush you. And then you have the other counter argument, which is like, oh, they're so stodgy. They can't move. They're, you know, they're bureaucratic. What has been your experience? What Have the competitors had any response? Do they not really care? Like, what's it like to be in that kind of market? Well, I think it depends on your go-to-market strategy. So we couldn't create a cereal that is like slightly better than the existing cereals and launch it into retail. That wouldn't work because it would be very easy for one of our much larger incumbents to improve their product by 20% and slot it into every Walmart and Costco and Target in the country. They could do that. What they cannot do is create a cereal that is triple the price, massively more nutritious, and launches D2C with a huge influencer marketing campaign and PR. Like they can't really do any of that. And historically, when large companies have tried, they've failed. And there's a pretty long list of, you know, internal startups that large food companies, not these specifically, but just in general, have tried to take to market. And they don't have the authenticity and they don't have the right go-to-market plan to do it. And it takes them years. So we haven't typically been worried about the large incumbents. Um, blocking us or trying to copy us. And now that we've launched online and generated a huge amount of, of hype, it's now easier to take that front door rather than the side door and get on shelves. And so we now have retailers coming to us because there's no other cereal company sort of with the, the web traffic or the eyeballs or the press that we're getting. And so we can do that today. It would have been harder to do that when we launched a year ago. And so you kind of have used your direct-to-consumer strategy because you set you people buy this on your website. I mean, it's amazing. You're you're subscribing to Serial if you want. That will be your Trojan horse into actual physical stores. 
eventually, and that, that was the initial plan. So the initial plan was, all right, let's launch online. Let's get a bit of traction there. Let's get our Forbes article. Let's, you know, get some influencers to post about it. And then we can use all that to make a nice deck and pitch the Whole Foods buyer. And then we'll go and like start the real business, which is retail. However, our D2C business has exploded. And we've sort of pushed far beyond the ceiling that I thought existed for a D2C cereal business. And ceilings exist for any business D2C, right? Whether you're selling mattresses or eyewear or whatever. So we always knew the ceiling existed. I placed it at a much lower level than it's actually at. So now our strategy is morphed a little bit and now we're purely focused on D2C. We'll eventually go into retail to scale to level we want to scale this business, but we don't need to go there anywhere nearly as soon as I thought we would have had to. Now, you mentioned earlier that the challenge of the cricket bar business was that you know, it's a niche market. You get that early adopter who is, you're solving a fundamental problem for them, but it's hard to get their next door neighbor or who's just, you know, like Frank. And when you look at this business, so you've, you've been able to go beyond that, but it's it's interesting. If I think about this, yeah, it's cereal. We all know cereal. It's not intimidating, but you're charging three times what other cereal companies charge, right? So it's an it's, it's an expensive, it's a premium product. Um, and, you know, so it's not... It's not necessarily for everybody. It could be that you you reach the ceiling, but you've been able to, to go beyond. Why in this case, even though you have a premium product, have you been able to penetrate and not get stuck at that sort of rabbit early adopter level as you did with, with the cricket bars? There's a few reasons. Firstly, like you said, cereal is inherently mainstream, probably the most mainstream food product there is. It's got 97% household penetration. You talk to anybody in the street, about their favorite cereal, their eyes light up, they've got stories, they've got memories, they've got emotion. Everybody loves cereal, full stop. As to the price question, to me, that's just a matter of positioning. So you're right that our price is more than junk cereals, but it's not a lot in absolute value. So per serving, it's $1.39 compared to a bowl of like corn and sugar that most cereal companies put out. Yeah, it's three times the price, but compared to your Starbucks coffee, it's a third of the price and it's actually nourishing you, not just giving you a bit of a caffeine jolt. So for us, the price issue, at least for most people, is not really an issue about it being too expensive. It's an issue around they're comparing it to the wrong thing because our product isn't actually cereal. In fact, literally by definition, it's not cereal because we don't use any grains. Um, our product is basically a protein shake or a protein bar that we've made into the shape of cereal. And that's what the price reflects. And Price-wise, again, we're cheaper than every protein bar. And what about marketing? So you guys have a really awesome Instagram account uh, that is quite popular. I mean, you, you're at like 200,000 followers. Um, I mean, blowing any other – nobody – no other cereal company is playing in the Instagram space. How did <laughs> – how does that – does that matter in terms of sales? Is that more about building brand? How, how does that play into the strategy? It's a good question. And it's not, I think, as important as most people would say it is. For us, Instagram is in many ways where you like keep your brand. And when someone sees an ad or someone hears about it, for a lot of people, they're going to go to Instagram to check it out. And so what you show there is like social proof, validation, some lifestyle imagery, people enjoying the products, obviously mouthwatering product imagery. So for us, it's almost like a mood board that serves as like a validating step on the purchase journey. 
but it's not a sales channel in and of itself. So it's not like every day when we post on Instagram, we're tracking everybody being like, oh, cool post, I'm going to click and buy now. It's not as direct as that, but it's an important part of the journey. And I view, I view press in a similar way, right? Press for us, it's not a sales or an acquisition channel, but it's important in generating sales ultimately because it's good social proof. Yeah, that's the thing that I think you learn the hard way, right? It's like you think to yourself, oh, you know, if I have a huge Instagram following or if I get an article about my company in XYZ magazine, people are just going to be banging down my doors to buy my product. And it happens sometimes. It happens sometimes that somebody goes viral and all of a sudden they you know, overnight become this sort of, you know, overnight sensation, I guess. But to your point, that is that's very unusual. The reality is, is, is you you have to just sort of like be there for people telling a brand story creating social proof so that when they you know when they see the ad on facebook or when they're on uh, the website or whatever that is they convert now um you also i was reading about your your celebrity shout outs right and this is another interesting one so you have the chrissy teigen you know who's very of the moment right that's like that's like a you hit it out of the ballpark on that one uh you've got amy schumer who have given you a little love i'm curious are these things that just kind of happen are you working with people do you actually work with influencer marketers or and how does this does it how does it sort of uh drive your business influencer marketing for us is everything right and Influencer marketing can be anything from word of mouth all the way up to celebrities. And in the middle, you've got you've got podcast advertising, you've got Instagram influencers of like, you know, 100,000 followers. And so far, it's a spectrum. And some we, we do stuff at every step of that spectrum. So on the lowest level, we are seeding dozens of influencers, small influencers every week with free product. And that yields a huge amount of like seemingly organic shout outs on social media. And then on the mid-level, we're sponsoring a lot of podcasts. We are doing some paid integration with like medium-sized health and wellness influencers. Then on the top end of the celebrities, we have some celebrities who are investors in our business and then some who we sort of seed product to through connections. We, we've never like paid a celebrity to endorse our product. That's not something we would ever do it. I would think at least not far into the future. Um, but they all work in different ways. So the, the sort of seeding of smaller organic influencers, that's good for giving the impression that Magic Spoon is everywhere, which similar to an Instagram feed that looks beautiful, I think is a really important thing to convey to people that this serial is like taking over the internet and you know every influencer they follow, whether they get 10,000 followers or 100,000 followers is loving it and having it for breakfast. And so we wanna create this like overarching feeling that this is like the serial of the future that's just like taking over the internet. Um, and then the celebrities obviously are a bit of a different function, but still important. So you, you have been growing, you know, you've got this brand building exercise, you're doing product development, everything is going well, you raise capital and then boom, pandemic. How, and, and you, and it was actually for your business a boon, right? So you saw growth, you saw people stuck at home looking for healthier things to eat, changing their consumer behaviors. And so how did you respond to the, you know, the unique situation that was provided by the pandemic? I don't think the pandemic was necessarily one thing to respond to, right? It was sort of endless small things, some of which for our business were good, some of which, you know, personally of the business were not so good. So it was sort of very case dependent on, on the thing we're talking about specifically. I think we're deeply grateful and incredibly just lucky 
that we are selling food online that's healthy and shelf stable. And so from a, a business perspective, we've seen demand increase both from existing customers who are maybe at home more, having breakfast more, and they're upping their consumption frequency, but then also new customers who maybe perhaps weren't shopping online and now they're finally buying stuff online. So from a business perspective, it's been great on the demand side. The supply side is a bit of a different story. So obviously there's shipping delays that every company's experiencing, supply chain's a little bit tricky. So that's been, that's been hard, but we're grateful that that's been our biggest challenge and many other businesses right now have serious existential challenges. So you now have survived and thrived your thing. And there's a lot of temptation to do a lot of different things, right? I mean, I'm sure people are telling you all the time, well, why don't you expand into this or that? Uh, why don't you have 53 flavors? And um, and yeah, you probably have the money to do that, right? But as you think about the decisions you make, what's your advice in terms of choosing wisely to take the path that will be most favorable to you. How do you think about that? In our particular case, we know that given the size of the market, we don't need to do very many things. And in fact, the market could be much smaller for that to be true. So for us to generate you know, X million dollars in sales, whatever the goal is, we can probably do that just by being good at Facebook ads. And I think that's probably true of most businesses. You know, we're, we're doing three things right now, basically. We do influencer marketing, Facebook ads, and podcast ads. So we're getting really good at those three things, all direct to consumer. I think where most brands falter is they try to do every acquisition channel, every retention channel, and then offline as well as online. And not only just like by definition can a small team not do that many things well, but also you just don't need to for most businesses. You know, most businesses can probably hit their year one, year two, year three goals just by getting really world-class at one or two of those things and leaning in and scaling up spend there. It's all about the focus. Now, if you want to learn more about Magic Spoon, head over to Instagram at Magic Spoon Serial or to their website at magicspoon.com. Gabby Lewis, co-founder of Magic Spoon, FOMO. thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now, that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now it's time for the foam moment of the show, and I wanted to double-click on what Gabby said about his decision to exit the cricket company and start a completely new business despite plenty of positive momentum, five years of hard work, venture capital raised, you name it. I mean, the guy was a Forbes 30 under 30, so clearly things were going right in a lot of ways. But he determined that he couldn't scale it. And I really like that he talked about that because that's a very honest thing to talk about. And here's the thing, when you start a project, whether it's a business or something artistic or whatever it is that you start, 
the beginning is the honeymoon, right? It's the wine and roses. You're enjoying it. You're excited. You, you, know, you skip the TV shows that you like. You skip the social events to work on your big idea. And then, well, time passes. You maybe have some success, but there's no straight road up for anybody, even the very successful people, and you probably have some failure. But maybe along the way, you get tons of external validation. Everybody thinks that what you're working on is cool, and it becomes part of your identity, as we talked about earlier on in the show. That's all great, but if the business or the project is not meeting your initial reason for doing it, do you really want to continue? And this is the thing. All of that external validation is a vanity metric. And that is an expression that is written about in a book that I love called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. It's all about the fact that there are things that feel good. It's the newspaper article. It's the friend telling you how cool your project is. It's all of that sort of stuff, which is great, but you can't eat that for dinner, right? And so if you're doing the project to generate that kind of psychic value, that's terrific. Keep going. But if you need to make money or you need to see a return on your time and investment, then you got to get serious. And that means you got to do four things. First, you need to establish real metrics. When you get involved in a project, ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is the return I expect to have? And then measure periodically to see if you are in fact on the path. If you're not, you might want to abandon the project or change the way you're doing things to try to have more success. Second, you want to have external sources of accountability. You want to have people who are going to give you straight advice. They're going to tell you whether or not your idea is a good one, whether you are keeping true to your actual metrics, and whether you should continue working as hard as you are. Third, fun. If you're not having fun, that's a great sign that this is not the project for you any longer. Because let me tell you something, if you are an entrepreneur and you can't find joy in what you're doing, the whole thing is not going to work. Yes, it's hard work. Of course it is. But there needs to be joy. That's what gets you out of bed in the morning. And finally, ego. If this is about preserving your ego, if it's about avoiding failure, if it's about keeping up an external narrative, then you need to abandon the project. As long as your metrics are coming together, you have sources of accountability that keep you real and tied to reality, you're having fun, and you're not doing it just for the ego, then keep going. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, the big question is, what is the opportunity cost? If you just keep going and you don't try something else that could be more successful, you are leaving a lot of opportunity on the table. Gabby of Magic Spoon could have been successful if he kept going. This is what he really believes, if he kept going with the bug bar. But he is so much more successful now with Magic Spoon in far less time. So he took all he learned, went after a bigger market, and based on the initial results, that decision looks like it was absolutely the right one. Okay, so that's how I think about it, but I'm sure some of you have your own strategies, so drop me a note at letsconnect@patrickmcginnis.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram, and tell me what works for you. I'll share the best ideas on a future episode of the show. Big news, we now have a brand new website, so head over to fomosapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. FOMO. FOMO.